but it turns out the internet shows us over and over and over again that we cannot predict what we're going to want, what other people are going to want, what's going to be important, how things are going to be put together. And thus, we cannot predict what we should put up, how we should categorize it, what we should connect it with, all that sort of stuff. We get a much richer world if we hold back from anticipating. But a world in which we're not anticipating is a fundamentally different world. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is author and technologist David Weinberger, who has spent years lecturing at Harvard, as well as acting as a fellow and senior researcher at the renowned Berkman Klein Center for the Internet and Society. Just prior to COVID, David released his latest book, Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and how we're thriving in a new world of possibility. In this episode, David and I explore some of the key ideas that he focused on in Everyday Chaos, and this includes looking at the ways in which we have historically used reductionist thinking to make generalizations for society, for products, for technology, and how the latest technologies like the internet and machine learning are revealing how much more we can actually thrive if we embrace chaos and customization. This means letting individuals and data tell us what people want by exploring all the possibilities rather than attempting to predict and shape the outcomes beforehand. And now with that being said, let's get into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, David Weinberger. Uh, My favorite place to start with anyone who's written a book is what was it that motivated you to write this book? What made you think that this was a, a story worth telling? I, there's a unintended but obvious um, theme or thread through the what I've been writing for the past 30 years, um, which has been about uh, the way technology is shaping our ideas. Um, I think the fact that it does, in some sense, shapes. I mean, it's a very loose sort of phrase, but um, and how it shapes, I think, is a really hard question. But nevertheless, our um, thinking seems about uh, who we are and how we live in the world and what the world is and those sorts of things seems to track our technology taken in broad strokes. So I've been writing primarily about the Internet's effect on everything on everything <laughs> i hope that's broad enough um and in particular i've been an enthusiast of the internet from its beginning even while recognizing the horrible things that it does but i tend to write a little bit less about that in part because i'm a writer and that's very well covered <laughs> territory um uh and in part because um while it's very important that the negatives be covered, um, it does have the tendency in the sort of global or national conversation to blot out the positive or at least in really interesting ways in which the internet has already changed how we think about a whole bunch of things. Um, and that consistently, I noticed that what interests me is the way in which we, the internet in particular, has broken 
broken up our models. Mm. We're given us models of things that are broken up into lots of little pieces rather than centrally um, controlled or that's things that start out as holes and we can just take them for granted. Um, the internet has given us a different picture of how what things are and how they relate. Um, the title of one of my books is from like 2001 is um, small pieces, excuse me, small pieces loosely joined. And that seems to be a pattern that guides how I see everything. Um, almost every book that I've written for different publishers, uh, the first draft of the cover art is small circles or small squares that are um, loosely joined, even though you know, it's the title of one of the books, but not of the rest of them. So that theme seems to be apparent <laughs> even you know in the other books as well. But over the past, I don't know, five or six years, I've become uh, very interested in machine learning. Mm. Um, and for the same sorts of reasons. I mean, what what is it that we are learning about ourselves from machine learning. And I, I'm not thinking when I say that so much in terms of, for example, what machine learning tells us about human, our neurological structures, if it tells us anything at all, but rather how we are taking, uh, how machine, our encounter with machine learning is teaching us about how the world is put together and what it means to know things or to explain things and the like, all of which are really human sort of thought level structures. Um, so I wrote the book reluctantly because um, I thought I was not going to write more books because my prior book was in some ways an argument against writing books. Mm. But being a hypocrite, you know, gets, gets you over a whole bunch of problems really quickly. Sure. Um, so um, I did. And the, one of the ways of thinking about the structure, well, one of the ways of, it's not the structure of everyday chaos uh, roughly is... Um, I don't know, half or a third or something like that, uh, about how um, the internet has been changing our ideas about how the future works. Um, and then the rest of it pretty much is about uh, how machine learning picks up on that and um, is pushing, is explaining the sort of chaos that we got used to living on thanks to the internet. Um, the machine learning is giving us, in a sense, a model for understanding that for appropriating it, that sort of chaos. Um, and so there seemed like a, for me, a natural connection between the two. So is that the longest yeah. answer you've ever gotten to this? Not at all, believe me, not even okay. close. <laughs> well, I could go on. Uh, well, sure. what, I, what I'd like to hear if we could kind of continue this journey is what was that old picture, that old way of thinking? What was the older models that we've been operating on that you're starting to see a shift away from. So before we get too future oriented, yeah. I'd love to talk about the the previous or present paradigm. Uh, good. I think that's very helpful. Um, I should preface this by saying that my long time ago background is in philosophy. I have a PhD in philosophy from 1979 and I taught until 1986. Wow. Technically, that's a long time ago, um, and I'm not a qualified academic philosopher, even if I was then, about which there could be some argument. Um, I'm certainly not now, but that those that will explain why I'm how I'm about to answer this. That is, what is the the background out of which we are emerging? What is the context? Um, and I think it's a very old one in the West, and everything that I've written or talk about will 
assumes I'm talking about the West. Yeah. Only because that's the only thing I know anything about. Um, and that that culture that we all that we've all grown up in and which is still present. Um, there's lots and lots of things to say about it, of course, but that culture and our current culture is faced with an enormous problem, which is the world is very, very big and our brains are very, very, very small, or our embodied brains, if one prefers, as I do, um, really small. Um, and so we have had to deal with that. And our one of our fundamental, most basic strategies in the West and elsewhere, but very much in the West, has been to try to reduce what there is to know by focusing on what things have in common. Um, uh, whether this, these are laws that explain how the world works, which quite rightly apply, you know, ever since Newton, set of laws applies to everywhere the same in the entire universe. That's pretty much new with Newton, but you know, so we find laws that apply to every case, very helpful, not gonna argue against that. Um, we have been on a search since the Greeks and maybe epitomized by Aristotle for the essence of things, which assumes that there is an essence. Uh, for the Greek, this essence, what is a thing really? What's essential about it and what is a sort of accidental and we don't care still is this thing, even if the skin of the apple is green instead of red or whatever. No. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're Aristotle, you're trying to find a definition for each thing and the human task is to discover these definitions and how they are organized because the assumption also was that things get the, the the natural world consists of objects that have essences that we humans as rational animals can understand or we humans as creations of god can understand because he traditionally he has given us this ability um, and these things are also arranged in a perfect and knowable and logical order. And we can know that order as well. And for Aristotle, it was a taxonomic sort of order in which things are in categories and the categories are in categories and you get this hierarchy and it's all quite beautiful. And for thousands of years, we were in pursuit of this. Um, or God created, God would not have created a chaotic world. He, he I'm going to stop apologizing for saying <laughs> yeah. he, um, he created a world that expressed uh, beauty. It is a beautifully, perfectly organized world. And for us to understand it, and we have to be able to understand it because we are those creatures, the essence of which is to understand their world. We can discover those definitions. We can discover that order. All of those things ignore particularities, individuals. An individual apple in this scheme or an individual uh, duckbill platypus, which doesn't fit in the order very well, which is probably why I thought of it, um, or individual person or anything, um, is not understood by what makes it a unique individual. That's the accidental stuff that doesn't matter. It's you know by its, the definition it shares with all others. Um, and that is a really good way of making sense of a wildly particular world. Mm. It, 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 our brains are up to that task. I know this because we keep doing it. And, you know, we never, we argue about the order and, uh, but we have assumed all the way up, at least through 18th century, that there was this order. Um, and if there wasn't, then there was nothing to know. So what good, you know, what good is it to be the rational animal if there's literally nothing to know? If it's just a wild pile of particulars, 
So that's the context. Gotcha. Uh, into yeah. which many things have emerged, wildly oversimplified, of course. Hmm. Um, one of those things is, and in some ways, I think culturally the most decisive one, and I, stupid thing to say, because who, how, how am I measuring that? But in any case, I, I'll stick with it for now, um, has been the internet. Hmm. The internet has shown that, that that order has many uses, expresses much truth, but particulars are really, really worth our attention. Mm. And but, escape from those categories once we, I'm sorry, I'm almost done actually. I think yeah. I'm almost done now. Okay, yeah, sorry, I keep no, cutting you off. Um, it turns out that the order that we have devised in the past in the West mirrors, and I think not in an accidental way, mirrors the or sort of order that we impose when we are organizing physical objects. You put all the apples in one bin. It's the apple bin. If it's a library, which is a really good example, I used to work in libraries a few years ago, um, you have shelves. You got to put a book on one spot on one shelf. Um, and so you have to decide, okay, what is the major subject this book is about? Now, in library world, you can have more than one topic, but um, which is really great. But you have to put it on one shelf. Yeah. So if it's you know a military a history of military cooking or music or whatever, you have to decide: is go on the military shelf, the music shelf, the history shelf? You, you don't get a choice. I mean, and so our um, our philosophical, our conceptual way of organizing things mirrors that limitation which is a terrible, ter it strips yeah. meaning out of things. The whole hunt for essence mm. strips meaning out of things. Um, with, uh, di with the digitization and the connection of digitization over the internet, via the internet, we no longer have to put things in single categories and you get this riot of meaning and riot of possibility. And riot is in many ways not a metaphor. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, I mean, what I'm hearing is that we pretty much had to be overtly um, specific, very reductionist minded. We'd had to be very prescriptive so that we could navigate the chaos of the world as we got to this point. And maybe we needed to do that to get to where we are. But now that we are at this point, we're starting to realize that we're coming up against what, I don't know, chaos theory or the riot that you're talking about. Is, is Would that be accurate to say is like now the computer modeling is advancing to where it is. The internet is showing us what it is we're realizing that that very overt specificity needs to start embracing some kind of like chaos theory. Yes, um, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we have been on the internet unconstrained, uh, by and large unconstrained, and mm -hmm. in some cases, um, besides the horrible cases of not being constrained, um, we have been pretty literally unconstrained in terms of organizing things into multiple categories. This is why tagging in the mid 2000s was such a big deal. Um, and tagging as a, by which you take say a, a link and you share it with others, but you provide tags and as many tags as you want and there's no particular taxonomy. It can be tagged according to what it matters to you, but maybe nobody else, or you want it to be find, found by others. and. And um, we don't think about tagging as a separate activity anymore, um, but it shows tagging and the idea behind tagging shows up everywhere. Uh, we went from um, carefully curating collections to what we think is worthy as a library must because of physical constraints, as a spice 
uh, cabinet does, a, a spice rack in your kitchen does because of economic but also physical constraints. It's just so much room. Um, and we lost all of those constraints and we discovered really pretty early on in the internet that we could put things, as many things as we want up and not have to not engage in this reductive activity and hold things back. Um, and we don't even have to tag them. We don't have to assign categories. Sometimes we do, but we don't have to. Um, and the technology, the developing technology at that time, is able to, to find them no matter uh, how we are looking for them. And that technology has gotten more and more powerful. Certain basic, I say basic search technology. Well, we take as basic search technology, which is wildly improbable, mm. even from 20 years ago. Um, uh, we don't have to organize things in order to find them. And so we, we rather than filtering on, on the way in, which is what we used to do in order to keep the collection manageable, uh, we don't, that, that required anticipating what people other than us would want. And it turns out we don't have to do that. In fact, we can't do that. So we put up everything. We don't even, it's easier, it's less expensive to put up everything than it is to organize it and uh, filter it. And then we give people tools for filtering on the way out. Mm. Um, and so we no longer, just in this one type of use case of posting collections, um, we don't have to try to anticipate what our users, what the world is gonna find interesting, which is essentially unpredictable. I mean, some things are predictable, um, but overall it's not. I'll give you a quick example. Um, and this goes, I mean, this goes back to like 1963. So it's very much pre-internet. Um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald bought a gun from uh, Sears catalog. Sears was Amazon, except no online, of course, um, and uh, killed President Kennedy. Um, nobody could beforehand would have known of the significance of that one ad in the gigantic Sears at the time, considering gigantic Sears catalog. You couldn't, you could not anticipate that that would be important and worth preserving. Turns out it really, really was. And we see this now all the time on the internet. We can't, we can't tell what's worth preserving, but we're preserving uh, everything is the worst statement, but I'll say it, everything. Yeah. We don't filter on the way in. Um, and this is, this, helps break apart the notion that the way to succeed in a task, I don't mean economically, that too though, the way to succeed is to anticipate what's going to happen and what you're gonna need and to prepare for it and then hope that the thing that you anticipate is the thing that happens. That has served us since Paleolithic times, and literally since Paleolithic times. Uh, it's still an important part of our strategies now, of course, but it turns out the internet shows us over and over and over again that we cannot predict what we're going to want, what other people are going to want, what's going to be important, how things are going to be put together. And thus we cannot predict what we should put up, how we should categorize it, what we should connect it with, all that sort of stuff. We get a much richer world uh, if we don't do that, if we hold back from anticipating. Um, but a world in which we're not anticipating is a fundamentally different world. And, and in that sense, would you say that you're you're advocating or you support the idea of just basically collecting as much data within reason as possible and not, you know, the issue that I'm hearing is that maybe we thought something was going to happen. So we only collected data on that one thing, 
but that kind of was a self-confirming bias. But maybe what we could do is collect all the data that seems possible and then let it tell us what the right approach is. So I'm, I, I, everything, yes to everything, except I'm concerned about the word data. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, because there are implications, there are privacy and, and surveillance and um, uh, so many bad uses of data. That So if you take, take away data and replace it with stuff, the <laughs> sort of thing that we put up on yeah. the internet. I think Ethical the, data collection, let's call it that. Maybe. Yeah, but it's, see, uh, it turns out that, that there's certainly unethical data collection and it's easy mm-hmm. to you know think of examples of that. Um, but the issue is that when you have lots of data together um, and the data by itself is ethical, it can quickly become unethical. Yeah. You know, people can do bad things with it. So I want to put that in a little box for the moment, um, uh, in part because of that problem, um, but also because um, in many ways, philosophically, I'm a phenom- in most ways, philosophically, I'm a phenomenologist. I'm more interested in how things appear in our experience. And our experience on the internet is not primarily of data. We're not mm-hmm. staring at spreadsheets or long lists of numbers. We're staring at videos, that are, posts, you know, things that people compose, create. They're, they already have human meaning. Well, so does data, but, uh, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and there's terrible, terrible stuff. And just what I said about data also applies to the stuff on the internet. You can derive information that we don't want people to have that can be mainly used for evil, for doxing people, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, we are in a world in which every day we see, directly see the value of having, um, not filtering on the way in, enabling semi-permanent connections, public connections, links among things, um, allowing two, uh, two-way participation, multi-way participation, not simply publish and broadcast. Um, and that, and we see companies as well as individuals succeeding by following a path of um, what I would call unanticipation, mm. a phrase that really is not going to catch on a word that's not going to catch on but um it, i think it's pretty accurate um can i give you some examples of that or yeah please do yeah and and then you have machine learning which i think is giving us a model for understanding the chaos in, in strict chaos theory sense that is the internet um, yeah i so, mean you please build on that but yeah or or i would love to hear kind of how we're taking advantage of that that chaos like what are some of the tools or ways that we're using that to our benefit? Um, much of what many of us like about the internet, I have no idea how many. I assume everyone, because I assume everyone's like me. Mm-hmm. Possibly an error, but, you know. Um, I think that many of us, we use the internet, we do stuff on it, we rely upon it for work, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think many of us just sort of like hanging out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, I assume that's because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know where our end of the day, our browser history, what it's going to show us, or even how, how did I end up there? Yeah. You know, I'm not even interested in the 
types of grass used on a golf course. I don't play golf. I, how did I, oh, I remember it was, and then maybe you can track your way back. It had something to do with climate change or something. You don't know where you're going to end up, and that is a good thing. Mm. I mean, sometimes you fritter away time, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, depending, that's usually okay, too. You're exploring, you're uh, you don't. You never know what you're going to be curious about. You can't tell what you're going to be interested in. I mean, interests are not things generally you have. It's the ways ways the world snares you, catches you. You can't know everything you're interested in. So this opens up that it's part of the delight, but it means you can't. It relies upon an environment that permits that. Um, that isn't telling us, oh, here are the boxes you're interested in. Uh, climate change and uh, lawns. Oh, here's the box for that, and you better stay in it. Yeah, it, it really isn't like that. Um, in terms of unanticipation, I, I do want to say just a, something about that. Um, so I, I, I think we see that as the fundamental. Um, it's not quite the value of the internet, but it is the liberating value of the internet. That it's uh, maybe by mistake designed to enable us to thrive in, in an unplanned environment, an unplanned and multiply organized, simultaneously organized in multiple different ways. Because mm. right? an object that is within my little web that I traverse that's linked one way, for you, it's linked out in different ways. So it's deeply multidimensional in that sense. Um, so in... Uh, in business, there's the minimum viable product idea from the early 2000s, which has mm -hmm. become a mainstay of how startups and others you know, start up, where <clears throat> you launch a product with the minimum set of features that you think will be of appeal to, to people, as opposed to the Henry Ford approach when you design the Model T of spending eight months in a lab with a handful of engineers and absolutely nailing what the market wanted. No changes in it, virtually no changes in it for 19 years, yeah. um, 15 million cars sold. And we don't do that anymore, generally. We are agile and light and we say for Dropbox, okay, what matters, the key feature is uh, keeping a backup copy without anybody even noticing it. It's so flawless. And they did that and it worked. Um, and then once you've done that, then you see what, what people want, how they're using it, what they're not using. Uh, you talk with them or you listen to what they're saying to one another about other features, and you end up eventually with a full-blown product. The Slack did this also. I mean, lots of people do it. But that's a way of succeeding by not anticipating, mm -hmm. by holding back as much as you can from anticipating. Um, and I think once you start looking for things on the Internet that way, you will find tons and tons of them. Another quick example is the rise of APIs. Mm. application programming interfaces, which allow any developer in the world to make use of the services that your technology provides, often for free, either to tweak the user experience because their users are, want something different, um, or to integrate that product into some other product, which may be a big important one or could be just a homegrown one for, you know, some, um, but that's okay. You don't, the creators of the API, the company, say Slack, which has a great API, Dropbox has one too. Um, explicitly say, look, we can't, we cannot anticipate all the ways people can use this tool. So we're going to give you a, a gate by which you can get at the functionality that you need and build your own thing with it, or you know, yeah. make your own experience with it. 
uh, or uh, mods on games. I mean, this goes yeah. way back to early '80s, where people were changing. I mean, I did this in the early '80s, yeah. uh, changing the graphics in Wolfenstein to yeah. something else. You know, that's a really minimal case, but fundamentally making um, having open access to the game from the game maker. Um, allowing you to make your own levels, your own characters, changing the rules, changing the, the visuals, the graphics, etc. Um, which is just win-win generally for games makers because there's people unleash value in it and they get a game that they want to play even if nobody else wants to. So this is actually pretty characteristic of the internet. It's holding back from anticipating. And it seems like the these APIs, these mods, and, and what you're talking about, the internet here, these are all little portals to chaos that just let more chaos flood into the system to see what the individuals or the masses can manifest with it. Yes. The chaos in a particular, in the sense that you're using it, which is not the one in which people are running wild on the mm. streets, mm. Yes. Uh, which can be horrible, um, but in the sense of chaos theory, where um, there's, so I'm not going to get, I'm going to do a bad job of explaining chaos theory, but there's tons of stuff. The tons have uh, the stuff has many, many, many interrelationships, um, and there are so many dependencies uh, among these relationships that it can be difficult or impossible to predict what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, a butterfly effect is an example of this. Uh, the well-known butterfly effect, where you know, little movement by a butterfly in theory causes a tornado. I think thousands of miles away, um, and the idea is that. Yeah, it's a very small motion, but it because the web of things is attached in many ways so tightly, I mean, that the, it can pick up energy along the way and have a much larger effect. And on the web, one example of that is a viral video, mm. um, which nobody predicts. Everybody wants their stuff to go viral. Very little of it does. Nobody knows what makes something go viral. and But some does, and you end up with... You know, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of ice bucket challenges there were <laughs> five or six years ago, which is a crazy idea, sort of a dumb idea. Let's pour ice over a bucket of ice over our heads and raise money for charity, a good charity. They raised, I think, $150 million or something. Um, I never get a fact right. This, yeah. As general this disclaimer. Ballpark's um, good enough. And you know that every other charity and... Um, commercial enterprise, there is some dumbass CEO going, calling in the marketing chief and demanding, I want one of them. See what happened? They're putting ice over their heads. Give me one of those. We need that for whatever. Yeah. And the, this marketing manager is undoubtedly smart enough to try to explain that, no, the whole point about viral videos is nobody knows why they happen. So we'll, we'll make it, but I can't. Can't guarantee you that it's going to go viral, boss. This that is boss sort of is kind of in the old mindset of predictive prescriptive reductionism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they have the internet confused with a broadcast medium or something. Mm -hmm. Although this has been true. I'm, when Las Vegas came up with um, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas or I love New York, famous, you know, I heart New York, huge, mm -hmm. important symbol. I am certain same thing happened is before the internet was a thing. See, I heart New York. I want one of them. And the whole point yeah. is you're pointing at that example because it's an exception. It's a great example because people, you know, um, Survivor it's, bias it's always been a problem. Now it's worse. That is this idea that we can control and manage. 
Um, another fa uh, facet of, of um, uh, chaos theory is that the initial state of the system is very important to what, ha what happens when there's an event. And if you go back to in the morning, you open up your browser, or if you're old and you're not going to your, the apps on your phone, um, and not knowing where you're going to be is, well, that's because the, the initial state is so complex. It's different mm -hmm. every day, different links, different emails and messages and all that sort of stuff. It's different. It's intensely complex. And that means that it's a chaotic, that's part of it being a chaotic environment where you cannot predict where you're going to be, uh, you know, two hours later. In yeah. This is, this is starting to make me think of, and maybe this is a bit of a heavy handed term, but like self-actualization. And in that sense, I didn't connect this with your work when I first read it, but I'm liking this idea that as we kind of embrace chaos, what we're really doing is giving ourselves more possibilities or ways in which we might find that thing that speaks to us, something that's engaging, something that gets us passionate. And then that pulls us in that direction and we create the best version of ourselves or the best product or whatever, because now we're op operating in a very natural way rather than trying to force ourselves into paths that aren't good fits for us. Does that resonate with kind of what you're saying? Um, it does, at least in part, um, because I think one of the takeaways from the Internet is trying to. So we have it traditionally uh, not. Uh, to some extent. So in the recent past, anyway, um, and I would say in the past three enlightenment, uh, past 300 years, we've thought about the future as a series of paths um, heading out into the broader landscape. Um, the future consists of lots and lots of possibilities. But as the future comes closer, that is, as we move towards it, more and, more, more and more of those possibilities fall away until you're left with just one, which is becomes reality, is the actual. Um, and so our task, we have thought, to succeed has been, whether in business or anything else, has been to anticipate um, what is the best path for us and then do everything we can to narrow it down, um, the future down to that one surviving one. And in business, it's more explicit than it is in your personal life, where we feel less control, I think, understandably. Um, and that model is assumes a type of predictive capability that we don't have, never had. Um, and it gets confirmed by our uh, congratulating or self-congratulating those who make it through um, as a proof point, when in fact they're negative proof points. The fact that they are the exceptions who succeeded uh, means, you know, that's not, not a great model because it assumes something that we can't assume. Um, there's a tagline in everyday chaos that has not been picked up by anybody. Um, so the end of the section about the internet and how it has us thinking about the future on anticipation, that sort of thing, is to point out that the different ways in which we can see unanticipation happening on the internet, and I've pointed to, just in this conversation, to minimum viable products and to APIs, but there's a bunch of other stuff also. Uh, open access, open um, open source, where you put things out, you don't restrict it, you don't know how it's going to be used. But um, 
is a different sort of imperative for the future rather than, okay, let's narrow it down to the possibility we want. Instead, people are literally succeeding personally and in business by trying to make more possibilities. And so that's, that's the tagline, make more future, I think was supposed to be the tagline. Um, but that's is shorthand for make more possibilities. Where possibilities are not figments, you know, logical possibilities. I could, turns out I could be on Mars now uh, eating an apple and I'm just dreaming this. I mean, I, that's just sort of, yeah. you know, baloney possibilities. Um, but these are possibilities that people can actually take up and do things with. As with an API, we're making a whole set of services available, so now more things are possible. Um, you know, I, we all have access to tons more research and information, and that makes more things actually possible. And there, um, there's a there's a counterintuitive essence in here, though, too, right? In the sense that part of the point of making more possibilities is so that you can use things like A-B testing or APIs or machine learning to hone in on the best possible version of those possibilities, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a very good point. One that I do not make. Um, I think we'll probably talk about A-B testing in a moment. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, given... Let's come back to that. Yeah. Because I, I, think, I think it's a really interesting point. So I got interested in machine learning um, for, I, for a few reasons, some of them not particularly interesting. I, I was co-directing the Harvard Library Innovation Lab, dealing with tons of, that has tons and tons of data, has one of the second largest book collection and bibliographic collection. There's lots and lots of data and there's so many interesting things you could do with it. Um, but I got interested in it be primarily because it, at least in some cases, um, we don't know how it comes up with its results. Um, we can't figure it out. It's just beyond us how it's doing that. But we have evidence that those results are useful. They're right in some sense. Um, and so it just makes makes one think that, oh, so that we're using it in cases where plain old computing isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe there's something about the world. Maybe it's capturing something about the world that plain old computing doesn't. Um, plain old computing um, works from models of how a domain works. You know, a spreadsheet is a good example. I mean, a spreadsheet is a type of programming. It's just, you know, very easy programmatically, but... Um, and in a spreadsheet, you, you're trying to do one for your business or whatever, and you can see if you can shift costs and what effects that will have. You're going to play what if. Um, in a spreadsheet, you make a model in which you figure out what are the factors that apply. And, you know, those become the columns, and it's whatever. It's the number of salespeople and quarterly revenues and um, et cetera. It generally is not the license plates of your employees. That might be in an HR you know, um, database, but um, you put in the factors that you think are going to have an effect, and then you put in the formulas that can connect them. And that's essentially what programming overall does. Um, you figure out what the rules are and uh, what, what data matters and 
what's the connection between them? And that's a because it's being done by a human mind, it's you know, a spreadsheet can be very complex, but it's still relatively simple. And you can always, I think, who knows these days, but you can figure out um, what, what are the connections and how are they working? Um, I'm sure your listeners are going to think of a spreadsheet where that's not possible, but um, that's very unusual. Um, well, machine learning is, you don't, you, you're just giving it numbers. The numbers are in buckets, and they're the same sorts of buckets that you would use in the spreadsheet, right? Whatever that, um, I'm going to switch to a health metaphor, healthcare, okay? Yeah. Um, so if it's hospital records, one of the buckets is out of the 100,000 or a million or whatever it is, hospital uh, medical records that you have, uh, one will be maybe gender, um, another will be maybe the weight of the people, um, heartbeat, et cetera, et cetera, you know, tons and tons of these metrics. Um, you, the machine, the machine learning system knows there's a bucket here and there's a bucket there. It has no idea what the connection between them is. Even when we humans know, or at least think we know what the connection is, we think there's some connection between lung capacity and, um, I think between COVID or pneumonia, you know, lung disease, but we don't tell it that. Right. You know, um, between fever and certain types of illness, we don't, it has the fever numbers. It doesn't know. And it, and it has a list maybe of the uh, diseases as data. It doesn't know that there's a connection, which is crazy because yeah. your intuition would be, no, make it smarter. At least tell it what we know. There are arguments about that now, by the way, uh, reason, I think reasonable arguments about it. But if you don't do that, and if potentially include information that maybe you don't think has anything to do with it, because maybe our model of how disease works, mm -hmm. this disease works, or causes of cancer, we've been shown repeatedly we don't know what the causes of cancer are. We have to keep expanding our model. We know some of them, but um, if you give it data that may not seem to be connected, maybe it is. In the yeah. world, maybe it is. And not necessarily even causally. It can be probabilistically. Excuse me. It can just be um, sort of secondary causes. Mm. Um, and some of them are going to be bogus. Um, there's a famous one about uh, number of deaths in swimming pools charts very closely to the number of movies that Nicolas Cage makes in a year or the yeah. popular, how much money the movies make, something like that. It didn't hold up over time, but it was quite accurate <laughs> for a year or two. And we're pretty sure that's that's uh, the bogus, that's correlation without meaning. Yeah. But some correlations have meaning, even if they're not uh, causal. Um, it will find uh, probabilistic correlations um, that let it predict with some degree of reliability, and it tells us what it thinks that reliability degree is, um, the relation among things. Right. Um, and so the thing that was really, really real and still is deeply interesting to me is that this may be a better representation of the world than the programmatic one where we're stuck with what we humans think, how we think things go together. Right. Now, machine learning is also limited, still limited by lots of human things, like what data we think is worth collecting. 
which right. is intensely human and often very biased um, this decision, a sort of implicit decision um, that can exhibit great bias and do harms, harm to groups of people. But it's less restricted than, okay, I know how whatever works. Yeah. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Well, it seems like it, the machine learning helps us get outside of the biases that we know definitely exist for humans. Like we have certain associative uh, expectations that might make us very blind to something that we just completely overlook. But then the issue there becomes to get that, um, you know, outside human perspective, we have to hand things over to a black box. Uh, you know, the famous AI black box where we, like you said, you don't understand we don't know how the calculations are being made. It's just finding ways to figure out connections between data. Do you think that we're ready to start taking guidance from a black box? Do you think we'll be accepting oh, sure. much longer this notion that like, we don't know how it works, but it works. So let's just move forward with it. Yeah. I, 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 yes. And we already do. And we frequently do from boxes that may not be fully, fully black, maybe mm. not fully uninterpretable, I think is the technical term, which is really, most of us would call it inexplicable. There's mm. difference, difference between explicability and interpretability, doesn't matter for now. Anyway, so um, we do already. Um, so uh, I accept routing from Google Maps, having no idea how it's putting it together, mm -hmm. because generally it works. And sometimes it w fails spectacularly. And I do wonder how the hell, I mean, it sent me miles out of my way. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about it, but still it works enough times that I rely upon it. Uh, forecasts, uh, so weather forecasts, th that may or may not be uh, an explicable um Algorithm? It's not really an algorithm. I'm sorry. I, this, it may be a black box. Um, don't care. I mean, it works. Weather forecasts have gotten way more accurate. They're not perfect. Way more accurate than they were. If I'm getting, um, if we get used to getting medical diagnoses um, that are more accurate and look further ahead than give us greater early warning uh, and show themselves empirically to do so, yeah, when my doctor says, okay, I think you ought to take something not too drastic, but uh, you really ought to become a vegetarian, uh, which is pretty, I already am, so it's easy for me. But, um, you know, that's a pretty big lifestyle. And I object to change and I object to it. And the doctor says, I say, why? And the doctor says, well, the, the AI says that it increases by 32% the chance you're going to come down with this or that cancer. And I say, well, why? It doesn't make any sense. And the doctor says, we don't, we don't know, but we've been doing this for five years. And it, it's about 32% uh, increases eating meat. This, So up to you. I'm just telling I would stop I, eating meat. I'd hedge my bets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you don't want to. You know, but people do this. And the second thing is we do this all the time and have forever for non-AI-based applications, human applications, where we don't understand why, but uh, it works. So we do it. Um, we didn't know why aspirin worked until like 1950, and it had been used by the Egyptians. That's a long history of being used without understanding how it works. Okay. I mean, nobody understood how that works, and I they do now, but we didn't for a long time, but it worked. I take medicine now. I, I have no idea how it 
how it works. Now, somebody does, probably. That's <laughs> the fair. human metabolism yeah. is insanely complex. There's an argument that, uh, that it's the most complex thing in the universe because it includes the brain, which is also arguably the second most <laughs> complex thing in the universe. Um, so we're used to black body. Or I'll give you another example. I'm sorry. I, um, if you don't get a job that you applied for, you don't get into a college that you applied for, and you think you really should have, or if a judge says, I'm sentencing you, and you think, well, that's crazy, that's unfair, it's a, there may, may be an appeal process, there may not be, but the one thing that the judge is not going to tell you is why they set, gave you that sentence. And if you mm -hmm. say, oh, why did Schmo next to me in high school got into this college? I didn't. Um, it, you can ask the college. Either they have some stock answer, but they are never going to tell you. And if you ask the college, if the college did a review, because they were so upset by this, you know, which they're not, and they wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> what are, they're going to eventually they're going to come down to some some person who's read through your you know materials in a hurry and will be able to reread them because they won't remember and say, oh, I think I must have been thinking that we didn't need another hockey player or or whatever. Yeah. It's a life is a is a black box. I mean, you know, it's one of the things that machine learning teaches us. Yeah, I need to say now before anybody who cares about this correctly jumps down my throat. There is a tremendous amount of work being done to try to make systems more explicable. Mm -hmm. There are ways of evaluating the fairness of systems and even to find how they went wrong without knowing exactly how they work. That's the second point. Um, and it's, it's, it's really important work and a lot of progress is being made. There's no guarantee that I know that we are going to um, always be able to discover how a system made its judgment. Um, and there's argument about what I'm about to say as well, but it seems one there's a very plausible possibility that um, AI will continue to get more and more complex, outpacing the tools that we put in place to make it understandable. Mm -hmm. There's a very long conversation because maybe regulation that says we don't want that. Um, it may be that there are approaches that will always give us something of what we need and so forth. Because explanations are tools. You really don't have to understand everything. And this is before machine learning as well. They're tools we use to do things. And we may be able to get enough tools to lower the panic about machine learning working in ways that we can't understand. My hope, I mean, I can't, I don't want to call it a hope. I hope that what we take away from our encounter with machine learning is the notion that Oh, the world is really, really complex, and we should always continue to support science more and more um, in its quest, as much of, but not all of science is, to discover universal laws that apply to every situation or even more domain-specific laws. But we should also, we should never again let that blind us to the equivalent importance of the complexity of individuals, mm. which we hid from for thousands of years because we were not equipped to deal with it. We couldn't possibly. So we don't know where confetti is going to fall. Fortunately, who cares? But it's just, we can't do it, so who cares? We can't predict um, outbreaks of diseases or who will, who's going to get COVID? Yeah. Um, even now, even, even right now, you know, people who are fully vaxxed um, and careful are getting it yeah. and they don't know how we don't know how it's unpredictable and we're okay with that because there are too many particulars 
Um, and because oh, I'm sorry, we we, aren't, we can't predict because there are too many predictables, like who you passed on a subway, you know, right, uh, and so forth. But we're also okay with it because we don't have an alternative. Yeah. And so you know, but now I I hope machine learning is getting us to recognize that we live in a kingdom of accidents, that of a densely interconnected, chaotic system in which many things are predictable, many are predictable probabilistically. There are general rules that apply in many realms and apply better in some than in others. But essentially, life is our world and the universe is a series of overwhelming particularities, all affecting every other piece, literally every other piece, all at once, forever. Yeah, and we should embrace that. Yes, because it's real, because that's yeah. the truth. Yeah, and we enough. can see that now that we have a technology that lets us, that takes advantage of that to some extent and reveals it to us. Yeah, I love that optimistic note, David. And I, I know we're coming up on time, so I'll just segue us here to to the last question, really, which is: Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? Where do you think this is going? Anything at all? The floor is yours. So on the one hand, I obviously cannot now say, and I know where it is going. <laughs> Not now, because yeah. I, I don't think, it, you know, uh, I have a hope for how it's going, mm-hmm. in, but only in the sense of what we may be learning from this encounter. Um, and most of it has to do with accepting human limits, which I think is a very healthy thing thing for us to do. Um, I would like to believe, but I have little confidence that our encounter with machine learning that is teaching us about the importance of particulars, as opposed to only looking at the general as a source of truth, um, will teach us about the importance of differences. Mm. Because particulars are particulars only because they are different from other things. And the search for generalizations, for general generalizations looks beyond those differences. And if, we're, if we recognize that we're in a world of particulars, then we recognize that we're in a world of differences. And I would like that, to, I would like to believe that that will extend to the, the political and social realm where we become more engaged with and appreciative of differences among us. Mm-hmm. But that's a big leap. I, I don't, and right now, you know, I, uh, I generally refer to myself or think of myself as a depressed optimist, and I'm like a clinically depressed optimist at this point. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a really tough and critical time for us. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what will happen. I am hopeful that there are lessons that we learn, including about the nature of, of being moral and good, that we will take from the encounter whether we want to encounter it or not our encounter with machine learning we'll see or maybe we won't you know (laughs) fair enough david uh, i appreciate your time man this was a some nice optimism you know and and like you said an otherwise not so optimistic circumstance so i appreciate your time yeah well good I figure there's (laughs) pessimism doesn't need another voice i mean that's really what it comes down to (laughs) yeah All right, man. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Great talking with you.